0: Welcome to Governance House. This is Backgammon, our in-house podcast touching on the latest updates from the Middle East. Welcome to Backgammon. My name is Radhi Sari and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. John Holland-McCowan. Today, we will be starting with Turkey followed by the latest security and political developments from Israel before we touch upon developments on Syria and elsewhere.
1: Sounds like a plan. In fact, I think this goes quite nicely with the name of our podcast, no?
0: Well, yeah, you know the Middle Eastern name for backgammon is Shesh Besh. Shesh is six in Hebrew and Besh is five in Turkish. And (laughs) frankly, I thought you you were spot on in our last conversation about Turkish positioning uh, vis-à-vis the war in Ukraine including Turkey's attempt at mediation. So I wanted to start with that. Um, In fact, I think that the whole episode with the Turkish attempt at mediation, it it does show a shift in the thinking of the Turkish leadership,
1: don't you think? Absolutely right. I mean, Turkey has tried to play both sides of the political game by keeping some skin in their relationship with Russia and trying to convince the world that they are the ones that can meet with both sides of the political fault lines between Russia and Ukraine and and the West-backed partners there. That's something that Turkey has done in multiple conflict zones in the world, whether it's in Libya, uh, whether it's on issues uh, in Syria. For instance, they've tried to straddle these geopolitical fault lines, and that's only continuing in their recent behavior. And unfortunately, the negotiations don't seem to be leading anywhere. It seems like, if anything, Putin is doubling down in his rhetoric uh, in terms of trying to uh, achieve his aims in Ukraine, which seem increasingly... Difficult to envision actually um, taking root. True. I I think more broadly, though, this is sort of, it's a new attempt at, I think, the zero problem policy that you may remember from the [4] mid-2000s. Under the former Turkish foreign minister and Erdogan, former ally. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Whereby Turkey was supposedly to solve all his major issues with its many neighbors and could build these beneficial ties and relationships and ultimately, I think the Arab Spring and how Turkey tried to repivot become more of a powerful actor in the, in the region. Got the happy days, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was just a, a, an, the latest instance of a swerve in Turkish foreign policy that it's, I think, the ramifications of them coming to support the Muslim Brotherhood and their proxies throughout the mm-hmm. Middle East, um, ultimately lost them more friends than gained them. And so I think nowadays, this sort of refreshment that Erdogan and company are trying to forge with many Middle Eastern countries, including Israel, which we can talk more about. I think that's a very interesting mm-hmm. sub-issue. Um, it's just evidence, I think, of Turkey trying to realign itself yet again on the world stage.
0: No, yeah, it'll be interesting to see that. I mean, uh, you know, as they say, like a, a broken clock is right twice a, <laughs> twice a day. And And, you know, President Erdogan has been in power for the last two decades now. And a return to that policy is not surprising to me. I think um, I expected that policy to reemerge at some point, especially after the last few 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 years of really tough sort of alienation of Turkey. It was almost treated as a pariah mm-hmm. at, at certain points, including by the U.S., like a Absolutely. major ally. I mean, have you have you noticed any change on that at least?
1: Right. Well, th- this is a really intriguing issue that uh, was discovered. Um, a Reuters reporter uh, released it about a. A week ago, that said there was an interesting letter that the U.S. State Department had sent to Congress in order to sort of make the position of the administration known on Turkey's request to have new F-16s, I stress not F-35s. F-16s being sent to Turkey and more uh, modification kits to... Uh, just the basics. Really just the basics. And also retool their their existing and aging F-16 fleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's considered a gesture of good faith that Turkey uh, requested back in October, which has not been followed out. Um, as, as we know, the the Hill and uh, the White House has been very critical of Turkey's uh, foreign policy for the past few years, whether it's in Syria or um, the acquisition of the S 400 system back in 2020, which instigated all of these uh, sanctions, mm-hmm. uh, which has been levied on the Turkish state. Uh, but the reason why this letter is interesting is that it was in response to members of Congress who had sent a letter to the State Department condemning Turkey's actions and was asking, well, requesting that no major arms sales will go to Turkey, whether it's the F 16s or whatnot. And in the text of the letter, it was about a page and a half. Uh, what I find so interesting is the State Department's return uh, message was that it stressed that Turkey and the United States have shared interests in the conflict in Ukraine. It stressed that uh, there is still main there's utility in the NATO relationship, and that select major arms sales should be looked at on a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, interestingly, there's a line there that says, so Ankara's purchase of S-400 system and the sanctions that resulted from that represented, quote, a significant price paid, end quote. Effectively meaning, okay, perhaps they punished Turkey enough Mm and that a new sale of F-16s could be in the offing. And uh, to further along that line of argumentation, there's another quote that says that S-400, the legacy of purchasing that system. Mm -hmm. Is uh, did not bar, quote, appropriate U.S. defense trade ties with Turkey. So, Gadi, I just think this is a really yeah. interesting moment. I think maybe the United States thinks this is a seam with which they can exploit and uh, bolster their relationship with Turkey via um, some new uh, contracts for planes and modification of tools as a result, I think, largely of the stance of Turkey's made in Ukraine.
0: And I think that that would be a good moment to catch the the Turkish leadership at. I mean, they've done two... Open messages that I can see that are signaling a change in their in their behavior. First of all, you know they're, they're they're receiving of their of President Erdogan's of his Israeli counterpart. That was the most highest level meeting in almost fourteen years between yeah. the two countries, and I feel like after more than a decade of sharp differences over Hamas and the broader disagreements over Israeli Palestinian issues, this is a big change. Absolutely. But also we've we've seen the Turkish government washing their hands of the whole Khashoggi trial, Mm -hmm. despite its centrality to the AKP's own cohesiveness. So this, of course, is done to appease the Saudi leadership, which is accused of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi at a time that there's distancing between the Saudis and the Biden administration. So maybe they are starting to, you know, by appeasing the Saudis and almost, you know, softening to the Israelis. Maybe that does signal that change.
1: Right. Uh, and what I find so interesting about all of this is that Turkey and Israel have had these very strained relations, as you mentioned, the Israeli president visited uh, Turkey and that's the highest level meeting in 14 years as a result of these issues you talked about largely over the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine that President Erdogan and the Turkish leadership can backtrack on this very vitriolic rhetoric that's come up over the past decade plus on sometimes comparing Israel to uh, sort of a Nazi state or an apartheid state. Um, these are things that it's hard for me to imagine how you can easily dovetail that into better relationships, uh, knowing that you have this legacy of rhetoric that's uh, baggage. Uh,
0: well, yeah, the matter of rhetoric is extremely important in that. Hmm. President Erdogan and his party have, for the last decade, espoused a quite an Islamic rhetoric when mm-hmm. it came to issues in Palestine and, and Israel. And I think that was quite a quite a quite a different change now, or or whether. That change is even possible now at a time where where you've already unleashed the beast
1: in that sense. Right. I'm I'm with you completely. And the historical moment I think is really interesting because I think there's no coincidence that in recent weeks this visit has happened because both Israel and Turkey, they have played these mediator roles between Russia and the United States and the West. And so I think that it's highlighting the fact that there are common interests, that both of these countries have straddled these. Um, various opposing sides of this conflict in Ukraine, and that means perhaps it's highlighted that they do have shared interests that go beyond the Israeli-Palestinian issue that also are about security ties and where they want to sit on the global stage. So, Yeah,
0: and I'm not sure, though, how, how much the general population in either country is capable of grasping a sudden change as, as right. they once used to be. So, the, the last wave of attacks in Israel, I mean, that, that has been, you know, uh, blamed on lone wolves, but more than one lone wolf is not a, is almost a pack. And I think this is not a coincidence that, you know, there's been all these attacks that left, you know, several casualties in Israel, um, basically the same modus operandi that we'd seen before with ISIS, with other groups um, mm-hmm. of, of radical Islam. And it happens in the month of Ramadan. That yeah. also, you know, we, coincides with uh, Passover, coincides with Easter.
1: Right. This is, but t- tell me more about that, and what's the significance you think of this sort of cons? This uh...
0: well, this is something that is that is interesting to me always. That it's not just these three. It's always a question of whether these three are coinciding or whether they're all the, one of the same. Of mm. course, as you know, etymologically, and I think this is going to be interesting to. Some of our uh, uh, more advanced uh, language followers that uh, Passover or Pesach um, is often translated, or or Easter is is often translated as Fusa in Arabic. Mm. However, I think the real translation would go to Aramaic, and and I I, I oh. blame that on my uh, grandmother who, who spoke about thirty percent Aramaic in her language, which I never understood. Wow. But um, the word Fashcha in in Lebanese Aramaic, the word Fashcha means a step or a a passing, hmm. so it is Passover as as rather than than than, than uh, and that is all just to say that the intersection of the faith, the intersection of the language, the intersection of the culture, is actually expressed in two ways in the Middle East today, and that is largely blame on the rhetoric. One, it is a period of rapprochement Mm -hmm. the whole concept behind the abrahamic accords right the the idea that these are all one and the same religion but we're also seeing the other extreme where ramadan is supposed to be a month where uh, you go to heaven if you attack jews that is the isis rhetoric and that is what we've seen in israel and sadly that is what you're seeing some groups encouraging despite the fact that they
1: are themselves opposed to isis Right. I would like to talk more about that. But if we could briefly just mention that, uh, for those that are interested, that Ramadan was also coincided a year ago with the 11-day conflict between Israel and Gaza. And so, we're. I mean, I know we're both concerned that this conflict can get out of hand in this particular confluence of... Exactly. These, uh, but we cannot ignore
0: the, we, You're right. We cannot ignore that. It's not a coincidence. There is a trend here. And I think this is where the, the it is it is a dangerous thing to conf, to conflate the the israeli palestinian conflict with an islamic jewish conflict and right. this is i think where where the rhetoric can be dangerous even for groups that have traditionally opposed israel such as hezbollah for okay. example and this is something that we saw i think it was in december that uh, there was an article in a in a, in a newspaper al akhbar the one that's you know almost basically a hezbollah newspaper and it said um, glory be to the lone wolf, and it was all about encouraging the lone wolf's attacks in Israel.
1: Right,
0: and yet I had covered lone wolf's attacks on the, on Hezbollah's stronghold in the southern suburbs in two thousand thirteen. You know, in my heydays, and I saw the aftermath of suicide bombings. I saw the, the aftermath of car bombs on the local population, and I found it strange that you would still support those attacks as long as they're in Israel. And yet condemn them when they're against your own population. Right, it, not only your own population, but it, the attacks in Israel right now have coincided with a similar attack in Iran on in Mashhad, mm-hmm. on, on religious uh, scholars, Iranian religious, you know, Shia scholars. And in the same newspaper by Hezbollah, you have one article, of several actually, praising the attacks in Israel, praising the attacks on on, on civilians in Israel. Uh, done during Ramadan and and the the significance of that. And you have another article that is talking about, you know, the radicalism of ISIS and how, you know, this is bad. So this rhetoric is important. And I think that is also going to be hard for the Turkish leadership to walk down from. They're no different than that. The rhetoric by Hamas right now is picking up on that momentum of anti-Jewish. It's the holy month of Ramadan. It will be blessed war. And, and that is constantly the risk in the Middle East. And it's not only on that side, also on the Israeli side. You know, you got the biggest event in Israel in the last few months was a, a, a rabbi's funeral, which had like almost hundreds of thousands on the street in the age of COVID. This is still like the biggest event I've seen. Right. But both sides are still attracted to the religious rhetoric. And if we do not monitor that we're going to be finding ourselves in yet another conflict in in the middle east in israel and palestine and i think that will be the risk if if any incident happens at the at the al Aqsa mosque if settlers are allowed to do you know totally that that is again again the risk but this is important now to see what the turkish leadership will approach because they are an important you know the AKP is an important uh, uh islamic uh rhetoric source. Right. There are interesting
1: poll data in recent years that said that most Turks, I think they said sixty to seventy percent or poll from a couple of years ago, say that that the Turkey should be a leader of the Muslim world. Uh, one could argue that's a legacy of the, the Ottoman caliphate formerly being based in Turkey and, and what form does that take? Is yeah. it sort of in, in what areas of the world are we, talking? are we talking about Central Asia? Are we talking about the Middle East? Are we talking about further afield and Muslim countries in Africa? I mean, Turkey has really, I think, exercised a lot of uh, flexibility in trying to think where are the points of growth that they could have in Middle East influence. And so I think that that's that, that rhetoric and how they frame these issues perhaps has certain resonance in certain parts of the region and could have implications on what ties they're trying to build, which ones they're trying to uh, steer away from in the future of Turkish foreign policy.
0: And of course, this is a, a competition of these rhetorics. Uh, you got the, the, the one coming from GCC countries in Israel after the, the, the Accords were signed, the Abraham Accords, and then you got the, the rhetoric now coming from Turkey that's been there for the last 10 years about you know uh, uh, liberalism and, and Muslim Brotherhood being able to work hand in hand. That was the Arab Spring. Yes. And, and finally, you got the Iranian sort of um, anti-imperialist Chihar rhetoric that is also uh, looking at what's happening in Afghanistan with an eye of, of, of interest as well. I mean, U.S. withdrawal from the scene. I think
1: the legacy of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the very chaotic withdrawal that occurred, has cast a really long shadow in the Middle East and the broader world, questioning the U.S.'s ability to stand by commitments and how disastrously and quickly things can unravel once they've decided that the security guarantees they have been provided, they're willing to take the props from under uh, the Afghan government and whatnot. And so I think that's, I think the the crisis in Ukraine is the latest test of US resolve and thinking of Middle Eastern country we talked about in our last podcast about how you had folks in the region saying, aha, Russia was able to invade Ukraine despite months of Western intelligence, despite uh, a lot of concern that this was gonna happen. And the United States was not able to hold the line and hence this humanitarian disaster. Now I think that's very much looking at sort of the the points of departure when Russia invades Ukraine. It's not so much assessing how terribly they've done and how the United States and Western allies have done a lot to mitigate the risk of nuclear escalation or a NATO conflict against Russia, but they've tried ways to support their local partners and empower them to win the fight on their own terms.
0: Of course, because the U.S. government is, is, is such a big machine, right? Like you cannot blame, pin this on one specific administration. But I feel like the, the risk that we talked about, I think, prior to, to to the last elections, when we said that President Trump's isolationism or even his campaign of isolationism was going to backtrack even for his opponent, who was going to have to answer back exactly. to the cases that he's talking about and therefore will follow him and follow him in his isolationism. And that's what I feel happened to the Biden administration. One of the things that I, I cannot help but notice is that whatever is happening in the field by diplomats, by by um, by people trying to, 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 to negotiate things is not actually followed up by work in here in D.C.
1: Hmm. And this
0: is something that we've also noticed on Syria, for example.
1: Right. Let's talk more about that. Well,
0: we wanted to talk about the... Um, the news of potentially lifting sanctions, the Caesar sanctions, or at least exempting certain administrations in Syria from the Caesar sanctions. So, of course, as as we know, these Caesar sanctions engulf all of Syria, the central bank, the government, the Syrian currency, and that's how it's supposed to function. Now, in recent months and weeks, we've heard about exemptions being, you know, potentially given to uh, Egypt and Jordan to allow for. Uh, energy transfer to Lebanon.
1: Very interesting.
0: As well as exemptions to um, northeast Syria, where the, there's a local Kurdish administration, as well to northwest Syria, where there is a Turkish-backed uh, local administration. Because the, the the subject of the law says the sanctions uh, um, target areas under the control of the Syrian army. So that was the nuance that is right. being played
1: on. Very important distinction.
0: And yet, while Congress has been lobbied into this, 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 uh, uh, these sanctions, to go backtracking now. So I, I know for a fact that certain officials have met with the Kurdish leadership in the last in northeast Syria with the SDF and with the uh, with the local administration in the last weeks and told them that you know brace yourselves, we could be up for the lifting of the sanctions. And you know that that could be great news for the survival of that experience. Right. And yet, I do not see an effort being done here in D.C. to allow for that, because I I, I so? suspect that Congress people and the Senate will be like, well, "What? Why are you asking us now to remove these sanctions? You just asked us to put them," and that kind of effort is only possible if there is a presidential proclamation that gives the exemptions. Okay. But from the trend that happened, we saw that synergy. This company that was given uh, uh, an exemption to exploit the oil in Northeast Syria, was not given that exemption again. It was not renewed under uh, uh, the Biden administration, despite the fact that it was given under the Trump administration. Interesting. So if I was to to look at the, the signs, I would just say that I do not think that what is being said in the field, what is being said in, in Northeast Syria to to interlocutors, is actually being followed up by real work in, in D.C. And I've tried to reach out to a few uh, contacts that are working on the matter and personally I believe that they've, they've dodged uh, the question pretty well because I know they don't have the answer but we'll keep monitoring that we'll keep an eye on that because I know a lot of companies are interested in doing business there and I know a lot of uh, the, yeah. you know also This will spell a lot of uh, um, challenge to the Assad regime, which is a long term U.S. policy.
1: I I think, Gadi, you're making me think about some of the themes this week. One of them being that issues that people think are uh, divisible or indivisible actually are quite divisible in this region. Whether it's Hezbollah that says we are always going to oppose the Israel occupiers, and lone wolf terrorism is something that. Uh, is a glorious manifestation of God's will to oppose the oppressors and then very similar tactics are done and claimed by ISIS and Iran and then it's a deplorable act or it's uh, Israel and, and Turkey trying to find ways to mend certain ties but then not being able to come to agreement on certain other substantive issues like the broader state of the Israel-Palestinian issue even if they can cooperate on more security relationships. And so I think the challenge and what I think we're trying to achieve is to get folks in our association out there and have policymakers and uh, private companies better understand the nuances in this region and how they're playing on real life examples and crises that sadly are engulfing this region. And so, Absolutely.
0: I mean, people like monocausality and, and, and we've seen this with the conflict in, in, in Ukraine, and that was somehow simplified and there was a clear action plan. Whereas we failed to have something similar in the Middle East, right? Like a a um, a response that corresponded to. I mean, Russia has intervened in Syria, and and yet it did not have the same response that it got for intervening with European security, for example. But maybe that's why what you were mentioning earlier about the Turkish appeasement, uh, or at least the 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 rearmament of the F-16 uh, uh, fleet and, the, and their prospects The components. prospect
1: of it. I mean, we'll see if the sale goes through. I mean, Congress has to uh, give a green light too. I think it's an uphill climb, but it's interesting that the State Department seems there's some daylight there, that perhaps Turkey is in this unique geopolitical moment that they can get some of their demands, not all of their demands, over the coming future. I'm just looking forward to following that very closely over the coming months.
0: Absolutely. And I think the other topic that we touched upon in, in Israel is also... To have a look at, at their the internal like political scene, right. I think that's interesting too. Super
1: right? interesting. So you can imagine that if you're um, Prime Minister Bennett in charge of a very broad coalition um, that encompasses those Israeli Arab parties or far-right parties, of course, and he's you came from, and you're trying to figure out how are you going to respond to the, the Palestinian-Israeli violence? Are you going to maybe be seen as too soft by members of the far right part of the coalition, or even seen as too soft in dealing with this security crisis that's occurring, and maybe that could trigger defections in the ranks of this coalition. Mm -hmm. We already saw a defection uh, over the past week. Um, One of their Orthodox Jewish members uh, left the coalition, and now it's a split. So you can only imagine that if the situation gets even more complicated, and the government is trying to manage an Israeli-Palestinian flare-up and violence right now, that this government, as it is, that the same government that's also normalizing relationships with countries in the Middle East at an incredible pace, uh, that could be uh, critically endangered, that Netanyahu may return to power.
0: I know that tectonic shifts can be from either one of these fields that we saw today. A big Change in Israel could spell a lot for, I mean, because, you know, the Iranian nuclear deal is also... uh, uh, In the often (laughs) In the uh, exactly. They're all tied together. This is all tied together. Even even Saudi openness on groups like uh, uh, Hezbollah. I know they're uh, sworn enemies, especially after the war in Yemen. But there has been a return of relations. The Saudi ambassador has been sent back to Lebanon despite no change happening uh uh, in the status of hezbollah so in a way we are seeing that everybody's trying to have this zero problems policy maybe it's not just the turks that are actually trying to seek that maybe everybody's trying to have all the cards ready because of the of the ukrainian you know tectonic shift and this is what I, this is this is back to what you were talking about, the hedgers, the political
1: hedgers right. of the
0: Middle East. I think I like that term, and you should trademark it.
1: But, <laughs> well, it's really not invented, it, but it's something that I know my research is really focused on, is trying to understand how when push comes to shove, when people are thinking very critically about the utility of having Russia as a partner or an ally, or the United States or Europe as partners and allies, then, as you said, you have this tectonic shift of conflict in Ukraine uh, that has huge implications for the political and economic landscape of the Middle East. It's showing in stark relief how countries are trying to navigate uh, their diverse foreign policy portfolios. (laughs) And uh, so I think it's just a remarkably interesting time to get at the root of many of these states that are across the Middle East that are dealing with a real world crisis that engulfs much of the globe.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that we will keep following on that until our next podcast and in our client briefings until then. Um, Our bios and our fellow colleagues are on the website www.governancehouse.me and you can always contact us with questions or comments using the form. This was Backgammon.